How's everybody doing? All right. I'm pretty excited about this morning. I love Gerald. He's all over the place, isn't he? Hey, where is he? Behind the drum cage, up front. You know, where is he? We need a, we need like a puzzle. You know, instead of where's Waldo, where's Gerald? He, I think Waldo has that hat too. That's fantastic. Well, man, I couldn't, I couldn't be more excited this morning. We're, we're jumping back in. Some of you know and some of you don't know. Uh, we're going back into the Come and Listen series, which that is, for our church, one of the favorite series. We do it a couple of times a year, so we kind of leave it for a while, and everybody asks, you know, when it's gone. Like, when's it coming back? And for those of you that don't know what the Come and Listen series is, um, we have kind of three uh, rhythms that we have here at Ocean City Church. Sometimes we're in a book of the Bible and exegetically we're, we're walking through the book of Romans or we're walking through the book of Ephesians and we're doing that systematically, no title. It just kind of forces us to say, What's, how is God speaking to us? But we're in the Word of God every single week and sometimes we do that through series. We were just in the He Is series. We've done a series on grace. We did a series actually called The Ocean of Grace, which is kind of our mission statement here. But the other part of our rhythm is our, the, entire, the entire narrative arc of Scripture, which is the Come and Listen series. Come and listen to what God has done for you, what He's done for me, and what He's done for us. And we started back in 2014. We started in Genesis, right at the very beginning. And right now we're at, and you can turn your Bibles, First uh, Chronicles chapter 11. Uh, and for those of you that haven't been around for the Come and Listen series, let me just give you a quick recap. Uh, starting in Genesis. Now, this won't take the entire time. Some of you are a little bit nervous. Like, this might go for a few weeks, just to recap. Uh, but I want to get us kind of caught up so you understand, because the whole idea in this series is that we would look at the individual stories of God's faithfulness, but we would also zoom out and see that it's one story pointing to one event, pointing, pointing to one name, pointing to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus so that we would understand that this is a redemptive story. This is God's story of rescue for you and for me. And so we started in the beginning in Genesis with you got the creation of the world. God spoke the world into existence, the stars, the moon, everything that we see, let there be light, everything that we experience today. He spoke into existence and he created man and woman and everything was harmonious and everything was good for two chapters in the entire Bible. And then in chapter three, what happens? The enemy enters and it says right then at the very top, it says, and then the serpent. And what the serpent was convincing man and woman to do is to leave, like to, to say, you could be your own God. God is not being truthful with you. You could be the captain of your own ship. You could rebel against God and do your own thing. And they did just that. And in that rebellion, sin entered the world and the separation between God and man happened. They were booted out of the Garden of Eden, two fiery angels at the east end of the Garden of Eden. And they had no way to get back in because God was holy and now sin had entered the world. And it gets worse from there because just a few chapters later, it gets so dramatically bad that God is getting ready to flush the toilet on the whole thing. He finds one righteous man and says, hey, for the next 120 years, you're going to build a boat and everybody's going to think you're crazy. But trust me, it's a good idea. And then God certainly does flush the toilet on the whole thing and renews everything. But then just two chapters later, everybody wants to make a name for themselves. And you've got the Tower of Babel. They're trying to build a tower to heaven because they want to be God. And then God says, here we go again, spreads them all out, different languages all over planet Earth. And then God raises up one righteous man. He raises up a man in a pagan land. His father's name was Terah. His name was what? Abraham. 
And he looked up at the sky and God told him, look up at the sky and you see those stars? That will be your descendants. You will be not just a family, but a nation. I will be your God and you will be my people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. One of those sons was Joseph. He was rejected, ended up in a crazy circumstantial road that he went down in a pit, in a prison, in a palace. He ends up second command of Egypt which was a good news for his other 11 brothers and their father because there was a famine in the land and he ends up rescuing them and they become a family in Egypt. But that family and those 12 brothers become 12 tribes of Israel and that family becomes not just a handful of people but 2 million people over 400 years. But because they were so large and because they could do some things, the Egyptians enslaved them for those 400 years. And God wanted those people not to be in slavery just like he doesn't want us to be enslaved by anything. And he raises up a man, not a young man, but a man who was about 80 years old and his name was Moses. And he really didn't wanna go let the people go, but God came to him through a burning bush to take off your sandals, you're standing on holy ground. He said, hey, you're gonna be the one to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. He says, man, I got a speech impediment. I'm 80 years old, I'm retired. He says, it doesn't matter to me. I'm gonna send Aaron with you. You're gonna go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. So he goes and he says, hey, Pharaoh, you need to let the people go. Pharaoh says, I don't wanna let the people go. That's how we get all this stuff done. And so, you know, one plague, two plague, three plague, 10 plagues. Pharaoh says, uh-oh, I better let the people go. So he lets the people go. And then he says, I really didn't want to let the people go. So he begins to chase the people as they go. Two million people, horses and chariots are following the people of Israel all the way up to what? The Red Sea. And this is where we all know the story, Prince of Egypt. If you're a little bit older, Charlton Heston, we've got standing at the edge of the Red Sea. God comes, the, the sea is split. And what happens? Israelites make it through. And then the, the horse and the rider, they fall into the sea. That's like the second worship song that we see in scripture. And everybody's dancing on the other side in, in the area, which we would you know call the wilderness. And then what happens very soon? They begin to complain about the food from heaven, the manna and the quail. And they think we should be go back, we should go back to Egypt. And because of their complaining, because of their unfaithfulness, they wander in the wilderness for how many years? 40 years. And because of Moses' disobedience, he is not allowed to go into the promised land. So they're right on the cusp of going to the promised land. Moses hands the mantle to a guy named Joshua. Joshua was a lot like Mel Gibson in Braveheart. He comes in and it's kind of scorched earth policy, kind of uncomfortable. We had a time preaching through Joshua because there's a lot of violence. There's a lot of war. There's a lot of things happening as God subdues the land. And he tells them one specific thing. Do not, do not find yourself engrossed in the pagan culture that you're going in. There's going to be Canaanites in the land. They're going to be doing things that are not godly. You need to be a people set apart for me. I will be your God and you will be my people. But they disobey. And there's where we have judges. The cycle of judges where they end up becoming just like the Canaanites, just like the Jebusites, just like all of the ites that are in the land that God called the promised land. So what happens? They end up being judged. And in that judgment, they repent. And then in their repentance, God shows mercy. And then all of a sudden, they kind of drift back into doing what they're doing after about five minutes. The same cycle happens over and over and over again. And judges can be a very uncomfortable place to preach and learn, but it shows that we need Jesus. And then there's a bright light right at the end of Judges in another book called Ruth, where there's a love story and we see the kinsman redeemer, which gives us a shadow of our ultimate redeemer, Jesus. And then we end up in First and Second Samuel. Samuel's kind of the transition between judges and prophets. And Samuel is the guy standing around when everybody says, we want a king. And then Samuel's like, well, you have the king of kings. And they're like, no, we want an earthly king. We want a king like everybody else. This kingdom has this king. This kingdom has this king. We want our own king. So he raises up Saul, anoints Saul, who starts out a good king. And then Saul ends up being a bad king. And then we find ourselves with who? The greatest king over the king of Israel besides Jesus himself, 
King David. Now, what's cool about where we are right now in the Come and Listen series is we were a lot further. We had gotten through a lot of the medium kind of okay kings and a lot of the bad kings. But now, because we're in Chronicles, and the Bible is not chronological, if you didn't know that, it overlays a lot of what we read in First and Second Samuel. So we get to go back through who? King David, who is my favorite. And that's where we find ourselves in First Chronicles chapter 11. All right, here we go. Now, what I love about where, where we are in this, in this particular story, just to set this up, I want a couple of things that you dig and you find in Chronicles that's different than First and Second Samuel, because again, the, their similar time period is that David was actually anointed king three times. One, he was anointed. It's kind of the story that everybody knows. You know, uh, Saul's not getting the job done, and he's kind of walked away from God and doing his own thing, and just things are not going well. So, God goes outside of the family of Saul and goes to Jesse. Jesse has a lot of sons. They're warriors. He goes, lines them up, and, and David's not in the lineup, right? He's out there playing his harp, and nobody thinks you know, the little shepherd boy is going to be king. And they don't find him, and you know, the, the people that are the brothers that are all manly, manly, and they find it in David, and it's a man after God's own heart. So David's anointed king there, and then later on, as David's trying to get into the position that he is supposed to be in as king, it doesn't go smoothly. The house of Saul wanted to hold on to the leadership. It's kind of something that we see typically in, in the world. It's like when leadership and families hold on to leadership, they want to continue to hold on to leadership. So 11 of the tribes were still following the family in the line of Saul, and David was anointed king over what? Just Judah. And then we find ourselves in 1 Chronicles chapter 11. He's now, because the house of Saul, the person that was leading from the house of Saul, has now died because they've been in war and he ends up getting killed. And David is finally, finally, finally anointed king over all of Israel. You probably didn't know that. Anointed three times. Now, one of the things that you see in this passage, which I love, is that you've got war that's going on. They were always at war with their most famous enemy. Who was the most famous enemy of the Israelites? Anybody? Philistines. The Philistines were encroaching on Israel. I mean, to, a, to the nth degree. They had really infiltrated Israel and David's bunkered down in a cave. And this is where we get a good description. You get a description in both uh, 2 Samuel and in this passage of David's 30 fighting men. He's got these guys that are like Navy SEALs. Like I'm talking about butt whoopers to the nth degree. And he's got the 30 and then he's got the three. Now what's weird, if you read it and you count all the names, it's actually 37. So I don't know who was doing all the math and figuring it out, but it was like 37. And then when you have the three, you have somebody that's the head of the three, but they don't count him as the three, but he was more valiant than the three, but he wasn't in the three. Uh, just little things that you find as you read. You're like, I'm a little confused. Is he part of the three? It's like they rejected him, but he's their commander, and I don't even understand what, who he is. But it is kind of the way that they're referred to in Scripture is the three and the 30. So he had the 30 fighting men, and then he had his three close confidants. These were his friends. These were people that were with him before he became a warrior, before they became warriors. These were people that were around David that were in the mix before they became Navy SEAL-like, before they came, became like Mel Gibson in Braveheart or, you know, Russell Crowe in Gladiator, which is what they became. And you read about them in scripture and they did incredible things. I mean, you've got guys that slayed 800 men in one, at one time. Like there's one battle that there's a description of one of the three where he's waging war. Everybody else took off except for the three. And he fought so valiantly, but at the, at the end of it, his hand was frozen to his sword. They literally had to peel it off. I mean, these guys could get it 
done. And when I thought about David's fighting men, the, the thing that, that popped in my mind, specifically because the men have just done tribe, you know, the idea that we're better together. And I immediately thought, thought about friendship, especially after listening to Nate, Nate Larkin at Tribe, talking about the need for us that, that Christianity, the movement of the church, is not a solo mission. It is not me and Jesus and I'm going to go on my way. In fact, Jesus himself said what? Where two or more are gathered, I am there. It's not that Jesus isn't with you in your quiet time, but one of the bombs that I felt when we listened to Nate Larkin at our tribe gathering was, hey, if you want to guarantee the presence of God, you want to guarantee the movement of God, hey, where there are two or more are gathered. So you by yourself, yeah, that's okay. Quiet time, amazing. You should do that. You should study on your own. But you need men around you. You need women around you. You need friends wrapping around your life and your heart. But as I continued to study this idea of friendship, just rooted in this passage in 1 Chronicles chapter 11, I did some study in the, in the secular world on how well we do friendship in the United States of America. And men and women alike don't do it very well, but men do it extraordinarily bad. Like we're, especially as you, be, you, you get into your mid-20s and you roll into your 30s, it's terrible. Like I read plenty of articles in psychology today, which I won't bore you with, but I will talk about one. I, I wanted to pick like the most secular article so that it would maybe be a little more relevant for somebody that's like, okay, this is Bible. I know the Bible says all these things, but what does the world say about this? Well, the world has the same opinion that we, because we're sinful, because we're broken, because we're in an individualistic society, and individual, individualism and expressionism is what is valued in our society. We're bad at friendship and we don't see the need for friendship, especially as men, because we're about individual expression. I don't want anybody telling me what to do or giving me their opinion. I wanna be who I wanna be. I get to create my own identity. And in that, that creates a situation and a scenario where we depend less. We, are, we wanna become independent. And that is rooted in the sin of the Garden of Eden. That is what Adam and Eve wanted that caused that separation to begin with. They wanted to be independent. They wanted to be their own God. They wanted to be the captains of their own ship. It's the world that we live in. And it's one of the reasons that we struggle so mightily with friendship. But I read this article in Huffington Post and I love the way that they write because they, they framed it and it was a, a, you know, a social psychology article. There was a bunch of quotes from doctors and people, but they, they use interviews with actual people to make their point. They use narratives and stories and they interviewed a guy named James. And this is what James said. He's 28 years old and he ain't got friends. He said, I never would have thought I'd feel the same pressure to make friends at 28 as I did as a 16 year old boy trying to find a girlfriend. Instead of being nervous about asking a crush to go out on a date, it's now about being shy about saying, hey dude, wanna grab a beer sometime? To the guy in your ultimate Frisbee league, James told HuffPost. James' girlfriend, and this just, all this is so real. That's why I like it. Because I could just see this all happening. James' girlfriend's like, she worried about James. You know, she's just like, James needs friends. You know, I mean, I, he's kind of, you know, he's on the texting stream with me and me alone all the time. And James' girlfriend tries to coax him into putting, putting himself out there. I mean, it's so funny. She suggested he text a neighbor for drinks. And he says, James' response, I love this. He says, I can tell that she's aware of my isolation and that my burden is becoming hers too, he said. The article continues and says, James isn't alone in, well, loneliness. 
Listen to this. White heterosexual men have the fewest friends of anyone in America, according to a 2006 analysis of two decades of data. Two decades of data. So we have a problem with friendship. You know, and there's this, there's this thing, and we all want it as men, but I think we don't know that we want it. Women do a, a little bit better on the intimacy side and know that intimacy is an important thing. Men kind of push the idea of intimacy away. And I think in the culture that we're in, I think we, we even get to the point where we don't want to. And I don't mean to talk to the men a lot today, but I think the ladies don't mind if we talk to the men about, get a friend, right? <laughs> Y'all need them to get a friend. I mean, if you're in your 30s or if you're married, all of a sudden your husband has started to cling to you. I mean, he doesn't want to admit that. I'll admit that. I mean, I'm always tracking my wife. Like, where is she? Is she at Target again? I want to talk. I need to talk to her about, and I watch the, I'm, I'm terrible. It's like a stalker. I watch the blue light move around. When's she coming home? Where's she going? She got friends. See, she's with people. She pulls up. Somebody's, you know, and I'm like, who's that? You got a friend? I need a friend. I mean, that's just the way that it goes. She's got friends. Many of us don't realize the importance of the people we choose to, we, to surround ourselves with. Listen, this is how important friends are. Our friends determine the quality and direction of our lives. I mean, it's a big statement because I think in a church, you're supposed to say, well, Jesus determines the quality and the direction of your life. But as we get on the ground, as we actually read scripture itself, you're gonna read Proverbs, you're gonna read Psalms, you're gonna read and look at the relationships that Jesus had. Hey, guess what? Jesus had friends. Jesus needed friends. Jesus said, hey, this is going to be the sign and the mark amongst the people around you and the world around you that you belong to me is how you love one another as what? As friends. So friendship is so, so important. It determines the quality and direction of your life. It's something that our parents told us, like who you hang around with, you, you begin to become. In Proverbs 13, 20, it says, walk with the wise and become wise for a companion of fools suffers harm. You hang with dumb people, it makes you dumb. I mean, that is just one of those smart and wise things that we see throughout scripture. So why is this such an issue? I wanna kind of open this struggle of friendship and what we actually need. And there's two things and the two R's. I could go and have a list of things, but obviously I can't preach all day. But here's two things that we need real friends, quote, real friends. We also need the right friends. And so let's look at this passage and maybe God's going to kind of pull some things out that we can look at and understand about who David is and who these mighty men are and who his three boys were. First Chronicles eleven ten it says, these were the chiefs of David's mighty warriors. They together with all Israel gave kingship strong support to extend it over the whole land as the Lord had promised. So these were guys that he trusted in doing the things that he asked them to do. They were his confidants. They protected him and he protected them. This was at a time where we've got secret service. Like now we've got people taking a bullet for the president. The president's not out on the front lines of battle. I mean, if there's war in and around the White House, where's he going? He's going down below into some crazy bunker where nobody can find him. And in, in the day of David, the, the king went out on the battlefield with a shield and a sword next to his three, next to his 30, next to his 300. And they went into battle. I mean, you can imagine it because you guys have seen enough movies. But you can, you, can, you can see the whole thing play out and how it worked in their time. So he had this strong support amongst his men. And if you look at 
the, the works of these guys and some of the things that these guys did. I'll just give you, give you a few of them. One of, the, one of the three, Abishaw, he killed 300 men by himself. And he was the head of the three. And 2 Samuel had said at another time, at one single time, he killed 800. Benaniah killed Moab's most elite fighters. Like their, you know, their, their Navy SEALs. Their guys that were the two most elite in the entire country. He took them down. He killed a lion with his bare hands. He killed a seven, six foot Egyptian that had a spear. And it, it describes how he did it. It's like he had a, he had a club or a stick and the, the Egyptian, seven, six, massive guy. He's got a stick. The other guy's got a spear. He wrangles, uses his stick, takes his spear from him and kills him with it. Seven, six. The guy was a bad, bad dude. I mean, the guy could get it done. So you look at these men. It's interesting if you jump back into 1 Samuel chapter 22, the description of the men and who they were when David first met them. It says, all of those who were with him were in distress or in debt or discontented. And they gathered around him and he became their commander. So these guys didn't start out. I just want to make this point. They, weren't, they didn't start out like the bad mamma jammas that they get described as. They were actually distressed. They were actually the lowly. They were actually the outsiders. They were actually the ones in desperate need. And these are the ones that David led. These are the ones that he became their commander. And David became who he became because of them. And they became who they became because of David. It wasn't one of those things where one was leading the other. As you read about the 30 men and as you read about the three, it was the collective in which they worked together to become this one amazing unit, this one amazing fighting unit. If you go down to verse 15, you see something that the three, his three confidants, his three most trusted did for him. Three of the 30 chiefs came down to David to the rock at the cave of Agilom. While the Philistines, remember, they, they had come in and they had encamped in the valley of Rephraim. And at that time, David was in the stronghold and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. And he didn't like that. I mean, where was David, David from? Bethlehem. So he's like, that's my, my hometown. That is where I hang. That is what I would consider to be home. It's where I feel safe. It's where I feel loved. It's where I feel like I am who I am. It's where I experienced God for the first time. So David longed for the water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. And what was he looking for there? I mean, he just needed, it wasn't that he needed a drink. It wasn't that he needed water. He wanted a sense of home. He needed home. So the three broke through the Philistine lines. These guys took off. David didn't even know what they were doing. These guys took off and said, we're getting them that water. And they broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. This whole, oh, just this small, some of these small stories could have been movies. I mean, it just, I could just see this whole thing going down, breaking through the Philistine lines and going to draw water at the gate of Bethlehem. And they carried it back to David. I mean, this is just some cool man crap right here that's getting ready to happen. He refused to drink it. He's like, I'm not drinking this. And he poured it out to the Lord. So it was an act of worship. God forbid that I should do this, he said. Should I drink the blood of these men who went at the risk of their lives? And because they risked their lives to bring it back, David wouldn't drink it. What an amazing story. I mean, you see this bond amongst these men. And when you begin to study the life of David, David had this 
connection with the people that he went to war with. And under the distress and the stress of his life, David formed some of the most incredible bonds that we see in Scripture. I mean, if you want to use the word bromance, I mean, you look at Jonathan and David's relationship earlier in Scripture. Saul, who was wanting to kill David, his, his son was his best friend. It says his, their souls were knit together. That everything, they, they wanted to give each other everything. They never wanted to be separated. It was a, a beautiful, wonderful, platonic, but amazing, amazing relationship. So there's something about the life of David and the way that David operates that we need to pay attention to. So what, what is the problem that we have here? I already mentioned one of them. We live in an individualistic culture. I think men specifically struggle, you know, thinking that they don't need friends. And maybe I, I like to have friends, but not real friends. And when I say real friends, I'm talking about depth of relationship. I'm talking about intimacy. I'm talking about showing weakness. I'm talking about bringing somebody your problems, places where we can bleed on one another. So why? So the first one is we need real friends. So why do we not have real friends? So it's interesting. I read an article in Desire, on Desiring God, and it was basically why, why men struggle in this area, and I think it applies to, to women as well, is there's no perception of a battle, especially in the West. Like, I don't think we're in, we're, we're, we, we feel like we're in a war. Maybe in the last couple of years, we feel like, okay, there is a spiritual battle rolling. But there's, there's a lack of the perception of an actual battle when there is a war going on, a spiritual war that is going on. Real friends are forged in battle. Proverbs 17, 17, I think you have it on there, it might be out of order. A brother is born for and created in what? Adversity. This is where friends happen. This is where brothers are born. They're born in the war. The fires of combat meld men into brothers. And I wanna to talk to the guys just for, for a minute because I think one of the problems in our society right now is, is a bored man is, is a dangerous man. And I think we have a, a lack of a perception that there is a battle and a war that is going on. I think we're in a time where, where we, we segment our day, and I'm guilty of this as well, and we're trying to block off that wonderful thing we call free time, me time. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I think we, that's one of those things, and we call it self-care. We call it, I need my daily Sabbath. I don't know that there's anything biblical about a daily Sabbath, but we try to have that little, you know, I need, hey, baby, I need just about, you know, a couple hours, a couple episodes of this, and we'll be back on track. We, we, we block off free time, and a bored man is a dangerous man. According to Scripture, and I've seen it in my own life, play out that way, and I've seen it in the life of the church that a bored man is, a, we should be going to bed exhausted. I heard Matt Chandler say that, like we should go to bed tired. We should be worn out. A man with a lot of energy is problematic. We should be coming home from work, and, and sometimes I have to talk to myself coming home from work, like I'm gonna go into the house, and I've gotta resist the desire to go get you know, horizontal and grab the remote and block everybody out. But engage, me and Dan always talk about like the key word with our wives. Engage, Dan, engage. I mean, we all get in that place, right? Where we, we wanna have our free time. We wanna have these big blocks of time where we can recover. 
And I get that. There should be a time where we have a Sabbath. There should be a time where we actually don't get relief. But what do we talk about? We, we restore with the Lord. But a bored man is a dangerous man. Free time is not what God meant. He meant us to go to, to bed exhausted for holy and good reasons because we've been loving and serving our wife. We've been on the ground. We've been playing with our children when we get home. We've been doing the things that we should do. And, and as I'm saying this, I'm pointing the finger at myself. Because I forget this and I put myself in that position. I go for relief in those times and I try to create gaps in my day. I'm calendar freak out guy. Like when people say, hey, are you available on whatever? I immediately start to get a little bit. Anybody get it that way? Like my calendar is like, like I'm, and it's because I'm worried. I'm like, plus I'm like, I wonder what's going to come up. Specifically surf. And in that <laughs> zone, like is, it gonna, is there going to be a swell in this time. You know, can you, can you have lunch at noon? And I immediately, I do this all the time. I'm going to give this away just because it's fun right now. I'll probably regret it. But people are talking to me on the phone going, hey, man, can you do lunch on Thursday or whatever? I immediately am like, click. I'm literally looking at the surf report to see, is it over two feet? Because if it is, we ain't doing lunch. And I mean, I just, and I'm not going to tell you, I'm just like, man, I got a meeting and it's in the water. Uh, but free time, a bored man is a dangerous man. Look at the life of David. Where did David get in the most trouble in his life? There was a war going on. And, and it, it was like the first time. And his friend and confidant told him, you need to go to war with your men. And David always did. But at this time it says, and David stayed behind. He stayed home. Okay. Stayed home. And what, what, what happens? He's cruising around on his rooftop. Maybe he's got his guitar out, you know, playing a few James Taylor songs. I don't know. Hanging out. He's bored. He's like, man, I'm doing, I ain't got nobody. All my friends are gone. What's happening? He looks over to the rooftop next to him. What's happening? Bathsheba. She looked good and she naked. A bored man is a dangerous man. And, and that story goes from not just go get her. I want to be with her. Go get her. I want to sleep with her. He gets her pregnant. I mean, you talk about drama. I mean, it's just, it goes on and on and on to the point where one of his 30 fighting men, Uriah, who was the husband of Bathsheba, comes home and he's in fear because she's pregnant. He sends him off to the front and in, in, into war, into battle on the front lines so that he would die. And he does. I mean, it goes from a bored man's a dangerous man. It goes from cruising around on the rooftop. I did not go to war. I stayed home in the place of where there's no battle going on. Men, we got to go to war. We got to be in the battle. Board, a bored man is a dangerous man. And we've been trained to deny it and go about it on our own and try to carve out time for ourselves. But I love what Greg Moore says from Desire and God. He says, although many men have been trained to deny it, we desire friendship. When honesty prevails, grown men miss the days of sword fighting, tackle football in the backyard, and watching the karate kid pass bed bedtime. I, I miss that. A strange ache groans in the cracks of our self-sufficiency because that's what we're told we're supposed to do is be self-sufficient when we need each other. We've lost the sense of the battle that's going on. And I think the only sense of the battle that we see, and when I see it on display, I, I love sports and for this. And if you're not into sports, that's, I get that. But there is something beautiful about watching, especially the violent ones. I mean, the ones that are 
Because it shows when there is an actual battle going on. When you watch a football game, there's things that men don't do that they do when they've got pads on and when they're laying it all on the line on on the football field. And it's nothing like war in a, in a sense, but in some, in some ways it is, and it's our only image that we get to see on a weekly basis, especially with college football going on. And, and for men, there's like tears in our eyes watching football many times. I mean, all of the things that we're afraid to do, we do watching football and taking, I mean, you see men hug each other on the football field all the time, jumping together. And, ah! Guess what men do? They're on the football field. They cry. I mean, you see them cry. I mean, they're waging war together and they're hugging, dumping Gatorade on one another, all wet and crazy, just ah! doing something that they would never do. You know, hey, dude, what's up? I mean, that's what's most of the time, you know? Let's get in here. Let's see how hard I can, can I crack your knuckles when I shake your hand? I mean, that's the way that we approach each other. But when, when the war's going on, there's a bond. There's something that happens in wartime in that, in that article, it continues to say this. It says, Christian men fight in the greatest war imaginable, and I believe that we do, yet rarely experience such camaraderie. We are deployed against a supernatural enemy, and as shells fly all around us, we split up, each to his own way. We battle for higher stakes than any other conflict the world has known, and we go for it solo. And as we individually charge the enemy's machine gun nest, we wonder why we routinely are cut down. Foolishness and pride, not courage and faith, lead us to storm the gates of hell alone. I think it's so true. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, you will not find the warrior, the poet, the philosopher, or the Christian by staring into his eyes as if he were your mistress. Better to fight beside him. Read with him, argue with him, and pray with him. We need real friends. We need real friends. And the way that we're going to find those friends is that we need to recognize that there is a war going on, that there is a battle that's being waged. And this is for men and women alike. We need each other. If we don't perceive that there's a battle, then we'll, our, our perception I mean, I think that we, there, there's something deep down in the heart of who we are, just like Greg Moore said. You know, we, we do sense the battle going on in some ways. We sing that song, Battle Belongs to the Lord. And I think, I mean, for me, I'm in the front row and I'm crying because I'm, I feel like I'm in a war. I think when we really connect to God and listen to God, we realize there's a supernatural battle and there's an enemy who wants to kill us, who wants to destroy us, who wants to take us down, who wants to put us in a hole in the ground and render us completely inept in the battle that we're in, in the battle of carrying the name of Jesus to our children and to the rest of the world. We need real friends, but we also need the right friends. I love this. This idea, this is also a Craig Rochelle quote. Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. I mean, that's something my mom would have said. My mom's here. Like just the people that you hang out with, they shape you. You become the people that you hang out with. My wife has said this many times, just watching my behavior around my friends. I mean, the people that I've known the longest in this church, we all have a lot of similarities, but we didn't start out that way. We talk a lot. We like the same movies. We, we connect in the same ways. You know, I was, when I was growing up, my mom would always say, there was this kid named Kevin Joyner, and he was a good old boy. I mean, he's redneck of rednecks. And I would, I would spend the weekend at his house, 
And my mom would say, every time you come home from Kevin's house, you talk like a redneck, as if I didn't already talk a little bit like a redneck anyway. And my dad was country, but I mean, it was like, you know, shotgun, rifle, and a four-wheel drive, and a country boy can't survive. I mean, my language and my vernacular just changed. I was just immediately, it was, man, we're going down there. We was down in the holler, in the, you know, it's by between the two Georgia pines, and I saw me a little critter down there. I mean, it was just, it, get, it got ridiculous. Because show me your friends, I'll show you your future. I mean, it's that same passage. Walk with the wise, become wise, for a companion of fools suffers harm. I mean, it is biblical that you will become the measure of your friends. When you are around those people, that is what will affect you. That's what will change your life. So who are the right friends? Well, I think for a lot of us, we try to come up with our list of characteristics. Like who are the right friends? Who are the people that I should should be around. And of course, we're going to go Christian people, you know. And, and as a Bible guy, I, I often, you, you, you read, you know, David. If you go into 1 Samuel 16, it gives a description of who David is. And I'm like, okay, that's, that's the kind of friend you want. I mean, guys would, would like him. In the description of David, when, when they go get him to, to bring him to Saul's court, is, hey, I know a guy. He's, he's Jesse's son. He, 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 he's a musician. He plays music. He's a brave man and a warrior. And then it says, I love this, because I was thinking, girls would love this description, and this is the guy that they're looking for. He speaks. Like, it, he says words, you know? Hey, can you just say, can you say a word? Like, you know, when I ask you how your day is, to say fine. That's not speaking. He speaks well. Like, he speaks, period. Does he talk? Um, using words. And then it says, and He's fine. I mean, that's, I mean, I just, the girl, I, I just read that description. I was like, that's like, he, he's a musician. He's a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well, and he's fine. I mean, later's are like, that's all I'm looking for. Can we just line those guys up? He's fine looking. But he was a leader. He ended up being a king. He was good with weapons. He was a poet. He was an artist. I think we, we have a, an, an attraction to people in that regard, even in like church world. I mean, I think that's the, the, the people that we move towards. It's like you find people that have these outward things. But the interesting thing about how, how David was originally chosen was what? Was not his physical appearance. His brothers actually were way more studly than he was. He was the one that was overlooked. And God said, what? I'm, I'm not looking, you, man looks at the, the outside and the outward appearance. And I look upon what? The heart. And those are the, the characteristics that we want to look. And if you continue in that passage, at the very end, the guy that's describing David, he says, and the Lord was with him. Because that's what we really should be looking for, is somebody where the Lord is with him. But the more that I thought about it and this idea of creating expectations for friendship, I mean, I think that's where friendships go wrong. That's where we ruin the right friends. You might have the right friend, but because you expect the wrong things from that friend. I mean, how many have ever felt let down by somebody? Or maybe this is even a better question. How many have ever felt like burdened? Like you're never, you're not enough in the friendship. Like I, I just don't, I'm not a text backer. That's me. I'm, I have problems texting back. Like I just forget. And some people are really awesome at it. Like I'm surprised. I'm like, hey man, do you want to do the bam? Yes. I'm like, Wow. I didn't, uh, my phone has not been in my pocket all day and they just, they just got it down pat. And we have different levels of how we engage, different levels of how we communicate. And it ends up being about, I need somebody that can do all these things. Do they, are they gonna text me back? Are they gonna be the person that I need them to be? Are they gonna be all the things that I need when I'm going through a crisis? 
But really, who David was and who these men were, and what you find out is that, first and foremost, they were a good friend instead of looking for a good friend. They were the right friend instead of looking for the right friend. I mean, if you look at the characteristics of David, these are characteristics not that we're looking for, but that really that we would need to be. The Lord was with him. I want, that's what I want to be. David was considered a man after God's own heart. Not that he was like God. It was that he, he was after God's own heart. That's where he wanted to be. He understood that, that was the, that's where his satisfaction came from. His satisfaction wasn't going to be this wonderful man community or this wonderful girl community or this wonderful group of friends, but I am going to be completely and utterly satisfied by my connection to God. And how did he do that? He confessed before God his sins and he confessed before man. These are characteristics that we want. Because if you are this friend, then you will have some amazing friends. He was present in the house of God. I love to get some church attendance in here. He was present. He loved it. What did he say? He said, I would rather be, I, I don't care in what manner. I'll be the guy that holds the door for people as they come in. I just want to be close. I want to be in the proximity. I want to be in the presence of God. I, I would rather be one day in the house of the Lord than a thousand days elsewhere. That's who we want to be as friends. And that's where we want to lead our friends. He was a worshiper and he had no fear in it. This is where another place that men struggle. And I'm not telling you everybody's got to be David dancing around and going crazy all the time. But I think there is a, you know, cool, coolness like about where we go right here. I'm going to be in the back and we might, this is what, this is what we're giving God today is right here. You know, maybe you know, battle belongs to the Lord. That one got me about right here, though. I was like, I was, you know. But the bread basket, you know, that's man worship. But David, you look at who he was. When the Ark of the Covenant made it back, the Ark of the Covenant had been gone 20 years, and David made it his mission, because that's where the presence of God was. David was about the presence of God. He was like, we're going to get, and it was a crazy journey getting it. People died. Uzziah just touched the Ark when it stumbled on the Ark. They realized they didn't do it right, and they put the holes in the holes, and they got the right guys in the position, like, thank goodness we're carrying it right now, because God's holy, and we're not. We do weird things. People end up dying. They would get the Ark all the way six feet. They would walk six feet. They would put the ark down. It's going back to the tabernacle and they got a long way to go. They'd have a worship service every six feet just because nobody died. And then they would go another six feet, deep, 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 put it down. We're going to have another worship service. And then when they got, finally got back, the big worship service took place in the tabernacle. And David took off anything that made him representative of a king. Because he's like, I'm not the king here. God's the king. Went all the way down to his linen ephod, his jammies. And he runs around the inside of the tabernacle like a wild man dancing and singing dancing and singing, worshiping with no fear, to the point where his wife said, you are a fool. You cannot do this in front of the people of Israel and the slave girls. Put your clothes back on. Don't quit acting like the fool. And what does he say? I will become even more undignified than this before my God. He was a worshiper with no fear. You want to, we, that's, that's the type of friend that we want to be. Those are the things that we lead people as friends by the things that we do. And what's interesting, when I look at these 
things. I, I went and looked statistically at, at how women are at these things, this idea of being a man after God's own heart, being in a place of confession before God and man, being present in the house of God, being expressive worshipers. Women crush men in these departments. Statistically, I looked it up. Women, in terms of just being at church, presence in the house of God, presence before God, they're 68 to 70% in comparison to men. That's, churches are full of women. When it comes to small group engagement, it's the same. In our own statistics here, women, about 90% of the time, I'm close, 85 to 90% of the time, become anchors first. They say, I want to serve in the house of the Lord. I want to serve. And I'm not trying to shame all the men, but I am kind of. What kind of friend is God leading us to be? Now, every, you know, when I went through all of this, I just thought, you know, how, how do we do this? And what is it that we're really looking for? Because real friends are forged in battle. The right friends are the ones that lead you home to Jesus. I mean, that's what I got. I got stuck on the, the right friends are the ones that lead you home to Jesus. If you go back to this scripture, what's, what's so interesting to me is you see this, this, group of, this group of men who go, they hear that David, he needs to get a sense of home. And look what happens in that scene. They go to Bethlehem and they bring back the water. What is that water representing for David? Home. And his closest confidants, his closest friends, his warriors, the people that are fighting for him, they sensed his loss. And they knew that more than anything, what he needs is he needs home. And as, as men, as women, if there's anything that my friends can do for me, if there's anything that I can do for my friends, it's lead them home to Jesus. Because that's where David was, like, that's where my... That's what I need. I need friends, but ultimately what my friends need to lead me to is to lead me to Jesus, to lead me to the presence of God, to lead me because my friends can't fix everything. They're gonna always let me down. They're gonna, they're gonna fall below my expectations if that's the way that I frame it. But if I got friends that lead me home, and then what happens next? What, is it, what does it inspire David to do when they lead him home? Worship. He worships. He pours it out before the Lord in an act of worship. And I love this because the cross reference in this passage, and this is what makes it all about Jesus. This cross reference in the passage, it goes back to um, 1 Samuel, I think it's chapter 22. We may or may not have this on the screen, but it says, these men, this is where they were forged. These are the men that, that David chose. These are the men that David surrounded himself with. It says, all those who were in distress or in debt or discontented, they gathered around him and he became their commander. You know, we always kind of read passages like this, like I wanna be like David. I wanna be like these men. But when I, when I read that, I read all those that were in distress, all those that were in debt, all those that were discontented gathered around him and he became their commander. All I could think about was Jesus. I mean, you look at the life of Jesus. Who are the people that were surrounding Jesus? Who did Jesus choose as his three? Who did Jesus choose as his 12? 
Were they the best? Were they the most perfect? Were they the ones that had it all together? Were they the the best friends you could possibly have in the whole wide world? No, they were the ones that were in debt. They were the ones that were in distress. They were the ones that were discontented. They were the ones that were marginalized. That's who Jesus reached out to. The ones that that poured, poured oil at his feet were the most broken women on planet earth washing his feet with their hair. And these were the closest confidants to Jesus. These were the ones that Jesus called his friends. And when I read that, I just thought, well, this hits closer to home. Because I don't know that I've grabbed a sword and been to battle and slayed 800 people, but I certainly have been in debt. (laughs) Certainly have been distressed. I certainly have been in great need of somebody to command my life and to become my leader become my commander and become my friend. And the bond that bonds us together is not how we necessarily take all of our gifts and all of the cool things that we can do and put them all together and that's what makes us friends. Instead of looking around horizontally at one another and saying, okay, what, what connects us? All collectively, we look up to the one who connects us and binds us together. And his name is Jesus stand. Jesus, you are the author and perfecter of our faith and you are the you are the one that breaks down the dividing wall of hostility. You are the one that takes everything and changes everything. You are the one that unites us and binds us together. As different as we are, as different as you've made us in our diversity and beauty and individualism, you've created this beautiful collective called the Church of Friends.